Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is the second book of the Bible, so if you're unfamiliar with how to find your way around, go right to the front. You'll find Genesis. Go 50 chapters into Genesis, into Exodus chapter 1, and then go 19 chapters into Exodus 20. That's where we're going to find ourselves today. It's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about something that's probably familiar to most of you. How many of you, when you came in this morning and you saw these two tablets up here, you knew immediately what we were going to be talking about? Yeah, I got a few of you. You're like, okay, I've seen even somebody completely unfamiliar with Scripture. They're like, I think I saw those in a movie somewhere. Like some old guy with a white beard coming down a mountain. In fact, one of my kids, I won't tell you which one, but it was Seth. He, um, a few weeks ago, I was preparing this message, and he walks into my study. He's like, what you doing, Dad? And I said, well, I'm writing a sermon. He said, well, what's it about? I said, what's the Ten Commandments? And his first, first words out of his mouth in response to me, well, are you going to shave your beard before you preach that sermon? And I thought... Probably not. It's still kind of cold, although truthfully, the last few days I've thought about it. And uh, he said, well, don't do it until you preach the thing about it. So I'm like, why? He said, well, you know, you're starting to get older and there's some white hairs coming in there and you kind of look like Moses. So I'm not really sure how to take that. I could take that as a high compliment that I've been compared with a guy who gets more ink than anybody else in the Bible, short of Abraham or Jesus. Or I could go, what do you mean there's white hairs in my beard? What are you talking about? And so, but usually that's the picture, right? Two big stone tablets, big white beard, dude wearing a robe, maybe a little stinky, been up on the mountain, comes down, delivers this to God's people, and it's a list of rules, right? This is how you're supposed to live from here on out. And because it's a list of rules, oftentimes it gets removed from its context and we look at it and and there's one of two typically negative responses that we give to it. One is just outright disdain. Right? And, and this comes from some non-Christians who look at it and they think that this is a list of rules that's going to limit me, keep me from living however I want to live. It's a 3,500-year-old, antiquated, overly patriarchal document that has no place in a civilized world. In more acrimonious environments, uh, people may even want to make sure they don't even have to look at it anymore. Right? So let's, let's strip it off of courthouses. Let's take it off of public lawns. Cause, and I get the whole church and state thing, I really do. But, but what I don't get is this, this contention that apparently there's nothing more damaging to Western civilization than a 3,000 year old ancient law code that tells us not to steal from each other, not to kill each other, not to sleep with one another's wives. Uh, apparently, if people live like that, there are some people out there who think that would be the worst society ever to live under the sun. But sometimes there's disdain. They look at it and they go, what in the world does this have to do with our society today? The other response is misunderstanding. We look at this passage and we see a list of rules. And for those of us who look at this and we rightly see Scripture that is divinely inspired from the mouth of God Himself, but if we only see it as a list of rules, what tends to happen is our souls begin to develop this sense of moral superiority, right? So don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, check, 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 I did that, and everybody else that didn't do it, I'm better than them, and those people who want to do away with it, I'm certainly better than them. And so disdain, misunderstanding, uh, they cause us to really miss the point of why these documents were given to the people of Israel on top of Mount Sinai through the hand and the mediatorial work of Moses. And that's where we have to appeal back 
to the larger story of Scripture. So if you're joining us for the first time, you've joined us in the middle of a series called The Story, where we're moving from Genesis to Revelation in about six months. So we're obviously flying at like a 30,000-foot altitude. We're hitting the high points. But we're doing that in an effort to allow you and our people and anyone else who comes to see the larger narrative of the Bible so that wherever you're reading in the Scripture, you know how it connects to that larger story. And that's never been more important, at least at this point in the series, than when we talk about the Ten Commandments and their context. So let's do a little bit of a recap on where we've been. The Bible tells us that God created all things for His glory, that He created men and women in His image and likeness. Adam and Eve were our first parents. He placed them in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And that Adam and Eve decided that they would like to be their own God. And so in their rebellion against God, they were cursed. They were put outside the garden. And from this point, from that point, all the way up until now, you and I have lived in a world that is outside that garden and generally outside the fellowship of a loving and a merciful God. So we experience a lot of bad things in our world because of sin that resides in each human being. Now the story doesn't end there because God said in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to initiate warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, our enemy Satan who tempted Adam and Eve and caused them and brought them to a point where they chose freely to rebel. And I'm going to bring a seed out of the woman, a Messiah. That individual is going to come. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, and he's going to set everything back in its right order. In other words, I'm not just going to annihilate everybody and start over. I'm going to redeem, God says, what is mine, and I'm going to do it through a seed. And so every other story in the Bible from this point forward now connects back to this promise of God sending someone. You and I know that person is Jesus Christ, but this early in the story, all of that information hasn't yet been revealed. We just know that God is going to send a redeemer. Some years later, there is a global flood because life outside the garden means rebellion gets uh, worse and worse and worse until finally God says, I'm going to destroy almost everybody in a flood, but because I'm intent on keeping my promise of the seed, I'm going to spare, I'm going to save by my grace and spare a man named Noah and his family and allow them to continue the human race. And then a few generations after Noah, God begins to initiate in human history this plan to bring the seed into the world. And he does that through a man named Abraham. Abraham becomes the father of Isaac. Isaac becomes the father of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who are raised up to become the, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons is a man by the name of Joseph. And a couple of weeks ago, we arrived at the story of Joseph, and we learned how he had been betrayed by his brothers, that he went through a lot of very, very difficult things in his life. But through the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the kind providence of God, Joseph finds himself at the end of his life the second most powerful man in the world, the right-hand man to the Pharaoh of Egypt himself, in the midst of a bear market economy where there is famine completely surrounded them, but they have worked together and prepared for it. And that not only protects the Egyptians, it protects the Israelites. As Jacob, Joseph's father, brings the other sons into Egypt, and when we end the book of Genesis, that's where it ends. With God's people, he had promised them, I'm going to preserve you, I'm going to bring the seed of the woman through this line of people called the Hebrew people, and he is preserving them in Egypt under the rule of a kind Pharaoh and one of their own, a man by the name of Joseph. And then last week we saw where we fast forward about 400 years beyond that, and there is another Pharaoh. A Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph, 
who apparently is unaware of some of the backstory that was going on with Joseph. All he knows is that these Hebrew people are multiplying like crazy, and he is afraid that they, the Egyptians, are going to get bred out. And so he enslaves them. And then when that doesn't work, he drowns the youngest and most vulnerable of them in the Nile, hoping at that point maybe he can discourage them from reproducing at the rate at which they're doing it. And out of that comes another man, a character who is spared from the slaughter of the innocents and who grows up a prince of Egypt, and his name is Moses. And Moses goes back into Egypt in his late adulthood, He confronts that Pharaoh and he says, you need to let my people go. Pharaoh refuses and the result is that God unleashes a series of plagues on the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And by the time he is done, the Nile is full of blood. The cattle are dead. There have been locusts. There have been flies. There have been frogs. There has been the death of the firstborn, including Pharaoh's own son, the firstborn of Pharaoh himself, lying dead. And Egypt now lies in ruins. Every single part of their national economy has been decimated and in ruins. And God's people, the Israelites, walk out because Pharaoh finally lets them go. And with the stench of death still in their nostrils, they walk out of Egypt into their freedom for the first time in 400 years. And that brings us to where we are this morning, Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. Because here's the thing, what do you think it would be like to live enslaved for 400 years, so you're at the end of that timeline, and you've never known what it's like to live free. Your parents and your grandparents, and even your great-grandparents, if they're still alive, they don't go back four centuries. You don't know anybody who's ever lived in freedom among your people. What are you going to do? And the answer is, you will still live like slaves. So by the time we get to the Sinai wilderness, we see, number one, that the Israelites have brought some of the pagan practices of their Egyptian captors with them. And we see, secondly, that there's some things that need to happen. They they need to live their lives corporately in a more ordered way. There is apparently adultery and stealing and killing and all kinds of things going on. In, In other words, they are free from one kind of slavery, but they continue to submit themselves to another kind of slavery. And even though the chains are off, they are not living as free people. They're still living like slaves. Several years ago, I had the uh, privilege to meet Dr. Carl Ellis. Uh, Dr. Ellis is the professor of intercultural studies at Westminster Theological Seminary, and he wrote a book called Free at Last, The Gospel and the African-American Experience. If you're interested in that part of our history as Americans, I would commend this book to you. Uh, One of the things that he contends, interestingly enough, as an African-American scholar himself, uh, is that as bad as slavery was, chattel slavery for the African-American community in the South in the 19th century here in the United States. Dr. Ellis said there was something else that was far worse. And it was after the chains of slavery were taken off, after abolition had been scribed into law in our Constitution, that the sharecropper age came. And then after that, the Jim Crow laws in the South, uh, some of those things in which I grew up in, spent my formative years of childhood on the tail end of, of some of that racist culture. And, and what Dr. Ellis says is those periods of history were actually worse because even though African Americans had legally been set free, no one equipped them to live in that freedom. And so the result is, when, you, when you've been a captive all this time, for really about 300 years at that point, and you don't know anybody that lives free, you don't know how to live free, now, even though you've been set free, other people can very easily take advantage of you. 
And we saw that with our African-American brothers and sisters in the sharecropper age. We saw it basically just a moment ago in time during the Jim Crow South in the 1950s and 60s and really even into the 70s when some of this was going on. So for some of you, when you just as an aside, when, when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and your complexion looks a little like mine, it's not, not as dark as some of your brothers and sisters who are in the building and you wonder to yourself, what is it with my African-American brothers and sisters? I love them to death, but good grief, that was 150 years ago and I'm not a racist and I've never said anything and I've never done anything. What's the big deal? You need to remember that when you enslave that many people for that many years, it will have a 150-year ripple effect that we still feel today and it will be not just because we enslaved an entire group of people but even after we took the chains off there was no equipping for living in freedom just go home today and google 40 acres and a mule and enjoy okay well what's my point in all this my point is that simply setting someone free is not enough to have them live in freedom you actually have to equip them to do it. And that's where we find God's people in the Sinai wilderness. For the first time in 400 years, they're free, but they need to learn how to live in freedom because they're not living like free people. They're living like slaves. Now, here's the great news of the gospel. The answer to slavery, whether it is the Israelites coming out of Egypt or African Americans coming out of slavery or the Jim Crow South or you and I coming out of our death uh, filled life of sin and slavery to sin into the freedom of the gospel. The answer to all forms of slavery is the word and the voice of God. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is God saying to his people, you are not living in the fullness of your identity. Let me remind you who you are by reminding you who I am and what I have done for you. And I'm calling you now to embrace your destiny. That's the whole purpose of the Ten Commandments. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It is speaking freedom and life and liberty to a group of formerly enslaved people and saying, this is the destiny that I have for you. And so when you read the Ten Commandments, don't just see law. Don't just see don't do this, don't do that. See a document that commends to a group of slaves how to live in freedom. That's what the Ten Commandments is. And when you see that, it will be very easy also to see how this applies in your own life. Do not live like a spiritual slave. Live in freedom. Live in freedom. And the way we discover this more clearly is by seeing the structure of this. You know, sometimes if you look back, what's the old adage, hindsight's twenty twenty. You see things sometimes in the rearview mirror better than you do when they're right in front of you. And because we're at a different period in history now, you and I have the privilege of looking back on this story with the fullness of everything that comes after it and seeing how it is that our Lord himself interprets the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments which is embedded within it and which summarizes it. And so let's take a little excursus now to Matthew chapter 22 because Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? What's the heart and soul of what God is trying to get us as Jews to do through the Levitical code that we will go through in a few weeks? And Jesus responded in this way. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that's Jesus' way of saying this. When you go to Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you see this sacrifice, kill it this way, burn it this way, 
Put on these clothes. Don't put these two crops side by side. Don't do this. Don't do that. He said all of that was instruction for the Hebrew people to help them live in the freedom that they were to have at that time period. And it is summarized in the Ten Commandments. So basically you've got the whole novel in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have the Notes version of it in the document that we're about to look at, the Ten Commandments. But, but what if you want to take all this down to a tweet? Is there a way to take the whole law and boil it down to 140 characters? Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. That, that really is why the Mosaic law was given. I want you to live in freedom. Free people love God with all their heart. Free people love their neighbor as their self. Now, here's the other side of that. So, well, if, that's, if it's really that simple, why do we got to go through all this other stuff? Well, it's because if we don't, we will be tempted to have our own definition of love attached to God's command. And sometimes what we think is love really isn't love. This may shock some of you, but just because you attach a definition to a term does not mean that that term is being defined correctly. God gets to decide what love is. And when he says, love me, love your neighbor, he summarizes what that means in the document that you and I know as the Ten Commandments. And this is the way that we live in freedom. So let's take these in order, starting with love God. Okay? And the first four commandments are, this is the way you love God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The latter six, this is how you love your neighbor as yourself. So starting with commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. First things first, there is one God. All right. So, so there's this declaration of monotheism here. Not polytheism, not pantheism. God is in the, in, in the uh, created order and a part of it. Not animism. The spirits make everything come alive. Not polytheism. There are multiple gods. Monotheism. There is one God. You're like, what does that mean in Hebrew? One. That's what it means. One God. And, and it's not just that those gods in Egypt were not more powerful than the God of Israel. They did not exist. Okay? The gods of Egypt, the gods of other religions, the multiplicity of gods that get worshipped around this world, the one true and living God says they don't exist. They're air. They're not real. And because of that, if you start worshipping something that doesn't exist, you're enslaving yourself. You need to come to the one and only true and living God and have nothing else before me. Now what's interesting is you, when you look at this in the original language, the word before there can mean a number of different things. It can mean in front of, it can mean behind, it can mean beside. Basically what he's saying is, I don't want any other gods. I don't want your affection to be given to any other object or person that you would worship. I don't want any of that in my presence. That's what he's saying. Now several years ago, my wife and I were in Beijing. And uh, we, got, we, we got a cheaper flight if we go in a day early before we met our group. So we didn't have a translator uh, for a whole day, but we also didn't want to hang out bored at the hotel. And I'd been to the city before, and so uh, I offered to take my wife around Beijing. And we went over to the Temple of Heaven, beautiful, ancient place there. Uh, it's still kind of right in the center of town. And then right across the street from the Temple of Heaven is the Beijing Pearl Market. Now, I had been in there before, and I had bought pearls for my wife, and I had brought them home to her. And, and I was actually kind of excited to see her be able to shop in this pearl market. Number one, fellas, it's cheap. 
I mean, it's almost worth the plane ticket just to go over there. It's cheap, all right? So if your woman likes pearls, just say it. Uh, the other thing was that market has a story behind it because it way predates Malk's Cultural Revolution. It goes all the way back to the dynasty days. And the men used to shop there for every woman in their life. So, for example, we walked in, and there's the first floor. The first floor of the Beijing Pearl Market is the concubine floor. All right? So if you had a woman and you were just using her for sex, then you bought her pearls from that floor. It's the cheap stuff. Okay? Floor number two was the consort, mistress floor. Right? It's a little deeper relationship, but not the covenant relationship that would exist in marriage. They're a little bit nicer, right? And so, you know, fast forward a few years, it's not a sin to buy pearls from the bottom floor. Your wife's probably not going to be impressed with them, though, because they're very misshapen and they don't, they just, the quality is really horrible. So if you want to go in there and buy a $5 strand of pearls that look horrible and give them to your, like, seven-year-old daughter, I guess you could do that, right? And then she could walk around and say she's got a strand of pearls. But the point is the quality goes up as you get higher and higher. The fifth floor, floor number five, is the wives' floor. The highest quality you can get. So we get on the escalator and we start going up the escalator and I sheepishly and, and well, with, with, a, with a little bit of mischief, I looked at my wife, big smile, and I said, baby, you're the only woman I have ever taken to the fifth floor. And she knew I was joking. But just to make sure we were clear, she looked back at me and said, baby, I better be the only woman you ever had in this building. Now, ladies, that's good, right? She had, didn't she have a right to say that? How often do we treat God that way? How often do we break the first commandment by giving God the fifth floor? And then everything else kind of, it's, it's, it's us, right? We segregate parts of our lives that belong to Him, parts of our lives that don't belong to Him. And so when we say, God, you get the first of everything, we are violating a commandment in which God says, I want everything. I want it all. I want your body, your mind, your soul, your business, your family, everything you have belongs to me. And by the way, I know how it all works better than you, so if you really want to live in freedom, you'll give it to me. All of it. Nothing else in my presence. One God. That's where it starts. And then from there, it continues to the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, don't create something that takes the place of your creator. There is one God, and he is creator. Everything else is created. And when you create a created and worship it like a creator, you violate both the first and the second commandments. And, and you don't have to be a Buddhist living in a, living in a place over in East Asia and worshiping in a temple to do that. You can worship any number of things. Now, that's tough. Because oftentimes we have to, I had a, after I preached this sermon at the 9 o'clock service, I had a great conversation with one of our people out in the lobby about how we kind of have to walk a tightrope with that in the church. Because as, as you, if you'll notice, we have images up here, right? I mean, we've got a big honking one right there. And then we've got all these, and you're like, well, is that really, are these a graven image? And my answer is, it depends on what's going on in your heart at this moment. See, one of the big mistakes of the Protestant Reformation when we split off from the Catholics was that because the, the Catholic Church, at least at that time in their history, were using a lot of icons and a lot of statues and a lot of art as idols, we just decided we're going to take all the art out of the church. And it's why most Protestant churches look like a dentist office. Yeah, and it's a mistake. It's a huge mistake. 
because we're not engaging the senses. So it's a tightrope that you have to walk, but you really have to check your own heart and say, what am I doing? Am I worshiping something else? When I was doing my work with the, the local association some years ago, one of our interim pastors, a Chris Eads type individual, gave me a call. and He said, Joel, I think I've made a mistake. I'm trying to walk my way back into something. I've gotten in my, myself into trouble with this church. And I said, okay, well, what happened? He said, well, it, it was a very traditional kind of building, a lot of stained glass, and it was this big wooden pulpit, like as wide as I am tall. You know, I mean, when they said the sacred desk, they really meant it. Big thing. And he said, I'm just not accustomed to teaching that way. He was accustomed to teaching more like Pastor Chris taught you guys before I got here. He sits down on a stool. It's the way the rabbis did it. Nothing wrong with it. He just sat on a stool, had a music stand, and he taught. And he had some people get really upset with him because he moved the pulpit. And so I'm having a conversation with him, and I said, all right, how much longer are you there? And he said, well, my contract's good for another four months. And I said, okay. I said, is this really helping the church move forward, or are you just stirring up trouble? And he knew the answer to that question. He said, well, I know my own heart. He said, yeah, I, just, I was just bending them to my preference for teaching. I said, yeah, I think you probably ought to pull, put the pulpit back, let the next guy deal with it. It's not really that big of a deal, right? You're upsetting people over nothing. you got bigger fish to fry than whether or not there's a piece of furniture up there. And he said, okay, I really appreciate it. I'm getting ready to hang the phone up with him. And he said, Joel... I am relieved we had this conversation. Thank you for helping me with this. I, 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 it got the, the, the conflict got so intense. One lady told me she couldn't worship without that pulpit up there. So then I, my tone changed. And I went, whoa, what? You didn't tell me that part. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. I had, I had more than one person say, I can't worship unless that pulpit is up there. And so I said, new plan. Sunday morning, roll a sucker out in the parking lot, pour gasoline on it, and set it on fire. There's your new plan. Are you serious? I said, you better do it before God burns the whole joint down. There's idolatry going on in that place. You see what I'm saying? It's one thing to, to appreciate something, to love. It's quite another to harbor worship in your heart for something that's created. God said, I won't have any of that in my presence. Because you're enslaving yourself to that created thing. And I want you to live as a free human being. And you can't do that until you give me everything. So no other gods before me. No graven images. No carved images or any likeness of anything that you would worship. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold guiltless him who takes his name in vain. Now growing up, I was taught that this had to do with what comes out of your mouth. How many of you grew up in an age when I did, when social services would not come to your house if your mother served you a side dish of soap? Yeah, took some of you a few minutes, right? You get a potty mouth, open up, here comes the life buoy, you know, pop right there. Yeah? Um, and I was taught that there was a list of words. Nobody could ever tell me the origin of these list of words, by the way. These are bad words you can't say. All right, well, why can't I say them? Because I'm a dude and I'm like eight, so I want to know. Why can't I say them, right? And, it, well, you just can't do it. That's just wrong. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. But there was no list in the Bible, and I thought, man, alive. There's no list here. What's going on? There's this list of bad words, and I'm never supposed to say that, because if I do, I'm breaking the third commandment. Now, there's a couple of things you need to know. For those of you who think that way, you're wrong. That's not the intent of the third commandment. Here's the other thing you need to know. For those of you with a potty mouth, it's also not an excuse to have a potty mouth. Okay? The New Testament speaks about crude language being a regular part of your dialogue. I'm not saying that it's always a sin to use strong language, because I don't think it is. There's some pretty stout language in the New Testament that we'll get to at some point, particularly when we read the, Paul's letter to the Galatians. 
Okay? But what I am saying is if crudity, dropping the F-bomb, doing that kind of nonsense is a regular part of your conversation, you need a wider vocabulary. Okay? So when I say this isn't about what comes out of your mouth, I'm not excusing a potty mouth, but what I am saying is it involves a lot more than just what comes out of your mouth. Do not take up my name in vain. And in context, it means this. Commandment number one, no other gods in my presence. Commandment number two, no idols, no carved idols, none of that in my presence. Commandment number three, you are not to speak or live your life in such a way that would make me appear to be one of the idols that I forbid. Don't speak about me in a way that makes me less than what I am. And this is where I take everybody off. Here it goes. It is my very firm belief that the biggest idol, and I don't care which side you're on or which party you're affiliated with, the biggest idol in the Western church is politics. Golden donkeys and golden elephants abound. You know how I know it? I know it when I see supposed evangelical Christian leaders get up and point at a casino magnate strip club owner and call him a man of God. You know how else I know it? I know it when that man's predecessor gets up at a Planned Parenthood convention where they butcher children for profit and concludes his speech with, May God bless your work. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Ever. Ever. This thing, I can't believe it. And some of you probably, you're already kind of, you put up the fence. And it's usually when I, pastor, that's an, that's an area, you, pastor shouldn't speak about that. Oh, I must have kicked open the door to an idol factory. All right, okay, I know where I'm at. This ain't about who you voted for. This is about ascribing God's name to things that make him appear to be less than what he is. And y'all know he's not Republican, right? Just He's not Democrat either. Y'all got that? Okay. There's things about both parties that make him smile. There's things about both parties that make him want to kill us all. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You say, Man, why'd you bring that up? Well, I just, it's, it's the big deal right now. It's like everything to so many people. Commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. This is a key component to living a life of freedom. Because you've got to remember, these are people that were formerly slaves. They didn't have a day off. They worked all the time. They worked all day, all night, every day, seven days a week. And now God says, you get a day off. Six days you shall work. One-seventh of your week needs to look very different. Because free people don't work nonstop. Free people don't die before they're 50 of stress-induced heart attacks because they won't stop working. Free people know how to take a break. Free people who are created in the image of God will reflect the creative rhythm of God who took one day off after creating the, the created order, and they will get rest. They know how to live in freedom that way. It is amazing to me the people, not only that violate this commandment, but brag about it. Preachers brag to me about this stuff. They're not 80, 90-hour weeks all the time. I mean all the time. All right? It's not like, okay, I had three funerals this week, so it's an 80, 90-hour week. That happens to any of us. It's, that's the regular part of your life. You never slow down. You never take time off. And if somebody confronts you with it, you're like, well, I'm needed. No, you're not. Eventually, you're just going to die, and they'll find somebody else to help them. You need to live 
And you need to live in freedom. And the way you do that is by taking a day. One-seventh of your week needs to look very different. And this makes me crazy, especially in a church like ours where there's something happening seven days a week and we think we're not spiritual unless we're tired. And nobody, anybody, how many people have ever stolen? Nobody's hands going up, even if you did. How many people committed adultery this week? Nobody's hands going up, even if you did. How many of you work more than 80 hours a week? Everybody's, I do, I do. It's like, so when are you going to repent? Because God doesn't want you dead before you're 50. Your body can't handle that. The God who wants you to live in freedom does not want you to work like a slave. Now, for those of you who come in here and all you do all week long is lay on the couch and eat Cheetos, He wants you to work six of those days. Right? So that's the other side of that. But the point is, free people have a life rhythm that honors the Lord. This, all these things together, are how you love your God. You know why? Because the more gods you have, the more service you have to render, the more money you have to give, the more things you have to do, the more enslaved you become. And so these four things taken together are the way in which you have no other gods. You give Him absolutely everything, and you live in a freedom that you would have never known prior to that moment when you give Him everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor. That takes us to the last six. Beginning with this one. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, some people have misinterpreted this to, to, to mean that if you honor your father and mother, you'll live to a ripe old age. You've got to remember, this was a command given to a group of people. So this isn't the promise of long life. What this is, is the promise of the perpetuation of society. Do you want to live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you? Do you want society that you are building to flourish? Do you want it to not get destroyed? Here's where it starts. Honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. When there's no honor and obedience to mom and dad, there's not going to be respect for authority anywhere else. Okay? There's just not. Mom and dad are the primary authority. Mom and dad, that's really aimed more at you and at me as a parent than it is even at our kids. One British commentator came over here in one of his big cultural statements. He said, the thing that impresses me most about Americans is how well children obey, uh, parents obey their children. <laughs> We're not setting the example for our kids that they need to submit to authority. And I'm not talking about being a big meanie. I'm talking about setting guidelines and rules and allowing them to see that an ordered free society respects authority. And if they don't learn to do that at home, if they just do whatever they want at home, then don't be surprised one day when they grow up to become a very well-adjusted axe murderer. Or you see them on cops. And you go, what just happened to my kid? Right? This is where the authority begins. Now, it looks different depending on what age you are. If you're a smaller child, it, it comes out in really simple obedience. You do what mom and dad tell you to do. You don't ask why. You don't object. You don't throw tantrums. You obey or you get punished. Okay? If, you, if you're a teenager, it looks a little different. Now, if you're still living under their roof and eating their food, it, that obedience is still there, as it should be. But it grows more as you begin to develop as a young adult, and you start to develop your own opinions, some of which are probably even going to conflict with your mom and dad, and that is completely fine so long as you remember who you're talking to. Don't forget that. This is your mother. This is your father. See, if you don't learn that, again... 
How are you going to learn it with some dude with a badge or somebody with a black robe or somebody, an elected official who's an authority over you? The, the reason we have protests all over the country every time something happens and somebody doesn't like it is because moms and dads have not taught their children to obey and respect authority. If you want an ordered society, that's where it starts. And, and, and it becomes more difficult because so many moms and dads are dishonorable. This is where the amens go to, uh-oh. Dishonorable. We've, we've loosened sex from its anchor, which is marriage. We've, we've done all kinds of things, horrible things to our children through divorce and remarriage and all kinds of things. I'm not judging you if you've been through all that. I'm simply stating as a matter of theological and sociological fact that the breakdown of the nuclear family has produced all the nonsense that we look at right now. And it becomes very difficult in that environment for kids to look at mom and dad and actually honor them. Because they're not honorable. Now you still need to honor them. You have to figure out how to do that. And sometimes that's tough. Sometimes that's tough. But this is where loving your neighbor begins. By respecting authority that is in society that finds its roots in the honoring of your father and mother. Here's the next one. You shall not murder. Murder simply means the unjust taking of a human life because life, if it is human, is created in the image and likeness of God and murdering a human being created in the image and likeness of God is a blow against the sovereignty and the very image of God. That's why he takes it seriously. We had a lot of discussion over the last 10, 15 years about hate crimes. I completely understand the sentiment. Nobody should be persecuted or mistreated because they're a certain color or because they're attracted to somebody different or because of any other reason. I believe that. But the thing about hate crimes legislation that, that sometimes gets missed is if you're actually hateful enough to murder somebody in cold blood, the reason why doesn't matter. You hate that person. And that's what God's getting at here. You can't have a society filled with people who hate each other, who won't talk to each other, because eventually that's going to grow to a level of murder. So don't murder. Number eight, you shall not commit, or seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now this one's got the closest connection between love of God and love of neighbor. Because every time you see God speak of idolatry in the Old Testament, the metaphor he most often uses to describe it is adultery. And if you've ever been the victim of adultery, you've had a spouse who's cheated on you, and you know the gut-wrenching pain and the anger that comes from something like that, then you know just a fraction of what God feels when we break either the first, second, or the third commandments. And so this is how it connects with, with loving your neighbor. This may be the biggest idol of all in our culture. Did you know our society spends more on pornography every year than on professional baseball, basketball, and football combined? I've counseled with some young guys in their late teens and early 20s. They're looking at pornography upwards of seven to eight hours a day. Tell me they're not living in slavery. God says, I want freedom for you. There's something better for you than this. Do not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Why is that? Because free people have a right to keep their own personal property and not have it taken from them. And so God prevents the oppression of others through taking from others what belongs to them and keeping it for yourself. And if there's ever been evidence that our society really is fallen in sin, if ever there was a solid repudiation of the belief that, well, we're all basically good just good people. This is it. This is it. Because if you believe we're all just good people, I'll, I'll challenge you to an experiment. Leave your doors unlocked all week. 
Take the passwords off all your devices and just lay them around. If you've got a GPS tracking device on something, just take it off. And next week, come up and let me know how that goes. And you're laughing because you know what I'm saying is true, right? You have passwords, don't you? You have a lock on your door. Some of you have a dog. Some of you have a gun. Some of you have a GPS tracking device because you know this is true. It happens everywhere. Salary.com reports that employees steal $230 billion in supplies and stock for their employers every single year. That's billion with a B. And so employers have to install security cameras, tracking software. We got it here. Not because our staff or our people are dishonest, but people come into this building all the time from the community, and we're always going to do that, and we're always going to welcome them. But probably every other month, I'm having a conversation with Steve because somebody stole something, and he's got to put another security camera up somewhere. You are being watched right now. Did you know that? Yeah. It's crazy. Wouldn't it just be easier if we wouldn't steal? I mean, it's hard for me to fathom how our national economy would be different if we would just obey this commandment. All that security stuff that goes into making sure people don't steal. The millions, sometimes billions of dollars that big employers have to spend to keep their own people from stealing from them. That is a society that lives enslaved to security cameras and passwords. That's not a free society. Next, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You love your neighbor if you don't lie about your neighbor, if you don't spread rumors about your neighbor, if you don't say ugly things about your neighbor, especially if they are untrue. And if you don't lie about yourself to the detriment of your neighbor. It was about 11 years ago at the First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, Florida, called Stephen Flockhart as their senior pastor. And six months later, the elders had to fire him because he had two degrees listed on his resume from campuses he'd never set foot on. Preachers do it too. Bearing false witness. Can you imagine the ripple effect, not just through that church, but through that community? How long it probably had to take for that church to come back as a result of somebody's sin? 2011, there was a beautiful, bright, young 14-year-old girl named Grace McComas who lived in our neighborhood. Was a brand new freshman at Glenelg High School. Bright, bubbly, wonderful young lady. Began to be intensely bullied. Ugly tweets and Facebook posts, rumors, lies, slander, all kinds of things, saying all kinds of untrue and horrible things about her. It didn't last long, but it's amazing how often the mileage you can get out of a retweet and the distant stares and the breakup and betrayal of friends until on Easter Sunday, 2012, she took her own life. Bearing false witness against your neighbor can lead to murder. It can kill. Don't hate your neighbor by telling lies, by assuming the worst, by not confronting somebody face to face. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And then finally, you shall not covet. Now, if you're one of those people that you you completely ignored everything I said in the beginning, and you're still looking at this like a list of rules, do's and don'ts, right? And so you're going number one, number two, number three, and you're just checking. All right, yeah, I've never done that. I've never done that. I've never done I've did, I do this all the time. I've never done that. And let's just imagine, I can't fathom for the life of me that any of you would be arrogant enough to think that you could check all nine. But let's just assume for a moment that you thought you could, right? I've never, check, 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 check. I got all this done. This tenth one is the one that's going to bury you. You shall not covet. Now, what does it mean to covet? It means 
to desire something that is not yours to the extent that it becomes an obsession to you. I have to have this. My life will not be complete without this. Won't be complete. It's a disposition of dissatisfaction that reveals a lack of trust in God. And every one of us is guilty of it. And not only are we guilty of it, but our guilt on this one allows us to see how we are also guilty of all the rest. See, with security cameras and the apparatus that we have today, you put GPS tracking software on my car, on my phone, uh, on, in my, you put a security camera in my office, you track me all day long, and if I'm committing adultery, eventually I'll get caught, right? If I'm stealing money, eventually I'll get caught. If I'm telling lies about somebody, eventually I'll get caught. There's no way you could possibly prove that, I'm, that I have a covetous heart. There's no way to prove that. Except in the way that that covetous heart manifests itself in these other violations. My sinful heart means that I'm guilty of everything. James put it this way. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. See, the Christian gospel is not about do this, do this, don't do that, and you'll be okay. Your, your destination in eternity is not dependent in any way on these two tablets. You are not going to stand in front of God, and He's going to check some and X others, and if you have more checks than X's, then you get into heaven. That's not how it works. You get an X on any of those, it means a great big X over the whole thing. Which finally reveals to us the whole purpose for why God gave, not just the Israelites, but you and me, the Ten Commandments. It was never intended to set us free. It was intended to allow us to see, kind of like looking through a, a store window at something we could never afford, the kind of life that He intends for us. That's what you should see when you see the Ten Commandments. A life of freedom that by yourself, apart from the grace of God, you are eternally cut off from and can never achieve on your own. Never. We need something more than the law. We need the lawgiver to come and obey it on our behalf. That is the place of the Ten Commandments within the story. He gave it to us to show us freedom. But this document cannot set you free. You can't find your hope in this. Because this document can't give you a new heart. And the Tenth Commandment, that one... You don't covet. That's the one that reveals the condition of your heart and mind. So we don't have the heart to obey this stuff. We, we can't do it. And so our hope is not found in the law. It's found in someone who fulfilled that law. We have failed to keep it. We are guilty of it. Romans chapter 6 tells us that the penalty for that is death, eternal separation from God. But we also know that not too long after these documents are given to the Israelites... An ultimate Israelite will be born through the womb of a virgin. He will live in complete perfection and obedience to that law. He will die as our substitute, taking the punishment for our sin, so that when we put all of our faith and all of our trust in Him, we don't stand before God and hope that He makes more checks than X's. We stand before God with a great big X over our own lives and over our self-righteousness and over our ability to do anything to please Him. But the great news of the Gospel is we stand just like that, clothed in the perfection Perfection of Jesus who checked every box. That's the freedom of the gospel. 
And that's what the Ten Commandments teach us. The law cannot save you. It can only reveal why you are righteously condemned. You need the one who gave that law to come and live for you and die for you. And the great news of the gospel is he has already done it. And he promises you today, not on the basis of this law, but on the basis of what is illustrated here and what he fulfilled, that you can be set free. And finally able to live in freedom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful word and this phenomenal story. And I thank you for what you teach us. Father, not just about rules, but about a person. About the Lord Jesus who came and who lived and who died and who rose from the dead. And who makes us able to live in the very freedom that you provide. Who makes us into the kind of people who will not steal or kill who will not bear false witness who will not covet because you have given us new hearts and those hearts love you with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength we truly can love God and love our neighbor but God we can only do it through you and so Lord I pray for anyone here today who's never crossed that line they've never accepted you they've never invited you in they've never bowed their knee and confessed you as Lord that today would be the day that they would do that and in doing that they would find the ability to live as a free man and a free woman for the first time in their life and I pray these things in Jesus name Amen